With that said, let's go ahead now and turn to the scripture. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. As you do, I want you to know right off the bat that after this service concludes, this sermon, being that it is so incredibly filled with various doctrines, I'm going to make myself available after this sermon and each of the next five to be here at the front to answer any questions that you might have. And so I will do my best, but I want you to have a heads up that there are questions that you might ask of these doctrines, which I will say to you, I want to answer your question, but I'm going to in one or two weeks when we get to those doctrines that we're teaching. There is some overlap here, so I'll do my very best, and I'll be here with you as long as you want me to. Uh, I'd love to be able to share more with you and more thoroughly about what we're discussing today. So please, if you have questions, or if there's something that you are just not understanding or unhappy with as you hear it, Lord, I just pray that you would come forward at the end and let's talk about it. Uh, one thing that you might know about me is that I love books. I love books. I like to read books. I like to look at books. I like to handle books. I like to smell books. I like books. And there just so happens to be a thrift store just a couple of blocks away where I occasionally go to peruse their very inexpensive books. And people donate books to them often, and sometimes there's nothing good, but every once in a while there's a gem, and I can find it for like 75 cents. It's incredible. Not long ago, I was at the thrift store, and there was an elderly woman that was just a little to my left that was also perusing the books, and she was clearly unhappy with what she was finding. So when an employee of the store walked by, she grabbed her attention and said to her, why don't you guys ever have any good books? And the woman who worked there, the employee, she, English was not her first language, and I think that she was probably struggling to understand what this woman was saying, so she, she said to her to make sure she had clarification, what do you mean? Is there a problem with the books? And the woman responded very snarkily, yes, there's a problem with the books. There aren't any good ones. Why don't you guys ever stock any good books? It's a thrift store. That's the reason why. Clearly, she doesn't understand how thrift stores are supposed to work. There are many things in life that you can get by without knowing. Like, this woman had gone probably 70 years without understanding how a thrift store functions. And you can get by in life without those things. Some knowledge does not ultimately matter that much. But when it comes to the things of God, we should always do our best to align our understanding with what is true and what is reality. One of the most important theological questions for us to answer is, how does someone get saved? That's fundamental to so many aspects of Christian life. It's fundamental to evangelism. Because if you don't know how salvation works, then you are going to go about proclaiming the gospel in an either unclear or worse, inaccurate manner. But even more importantly, if you do not know how salvation works according to the scriptures, you will not give God the appropriate glory even for your own salvation. The Lord desires for us to worship in spirit and in truth. Theologically informed worship is better worship. Doctrinally accurate worship is superior worship. It is much better to see God as he is and to worship him for that than to paint a false picture because no matter how big your idea of God is, it pales in comparison to the reality of who he is and of what he has done. Last week, we began by considering that God can do 
whatever he wants. As we said last week, let's try it one more time. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And you will never forget that God can do whatever he wants to do. And we closed our sermon with the fact that God is sovereign, not only over all of the things that he has made, but also over salvation. This sermon and the four that follow are going to be drilling down on God's sovereignty over salvation. We're going to do this by examining five doctrines that have come to be known as the doctrines of grace. They are sometimes called, or in the theological world, they are known as Reformed soteriology. They are also commonly referred to as the five points of Calvinism. The names of these doctrines are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Today, our focus is upon the first of those, total depravity. When understood, these glorious truths help us to understand both form and function of our salvation. And more importantly, they help us to understand God's role in bringing many sons to glory. So at this time, let me just ask that we would pray and humbly go before the Lord to ask his help as we come to these things. Our Father God in heaven, it is our delight to come before your word. And God, I pray that today as we are going to cover many passages of scripture, I ask, Lord, for wisdom that you would give me words to say accurately and truthfully and carefully and lovingly and empathetically and emphatically what you have to say to the church this morning. Lord, I also ask that for everyone in this room that you would give them ears to hear, and I ask that you would give them minds to understand what is being said. Lord, I pray that these things would land, that they would settle in our hearts, that we might believe and trust, and that we would know you as you are. We thank you, Lord, for these truths. We thank you that they are revealed, and we pray, God, that today you would bless us with understanding, and that way we might live for you better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, you need to know that there is going to be a lot of information coming your way over the next five weeks. I'm going to do my best to provide as much of a robust explanation of these doctrines as I possibly can, and I'm going to use various spheres of life to do that. However, before we even begin, I want you to understand how this information is going to fit into the arguments being made. There will be times that I will quote from notable theologians and scholars and pastors like John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul and John Piper and Al Mohler and Vody Bauckham and Tim Keller and H.B. Charles. And in doing so, I want you to know that we are in good company regarding those who agree with us on the things that I am teaching. However, we do not build our doctrine upon common consensus or model our beliefs around people that we like or respect. We derive our theology according to the word of God. I will also be grounding these truths in history, and I will provide information for you regarding the fact that these doctrines were taught and believed in the early church and by the reformers and by almost all of the early Baptist churches from whom our church derives its theology. But we do not ultimately build our beliefs around history or tradition. We derive our theology from the word of God. I will also be attempting to show you these doctrines are logically consistent and self-supporting. If one of them is true, the rest of them are all logically true. If one of them is false, then logically all of the others must also be false. However, we do not hold these truths to be self-evident. We hold these truths to be supernaturally revealed. We do not determine what we believe based upon logic or reason. 
Think about the doctrine of the Trinity as an example. Although it is true that we can grasp a minimal degree with our finite minds the reality of the doctrine of the Trinity, that doctrine would never be derived through human reason or observation or scientific method. We believe it because it was revealed to us. We believe the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrines of grace are logical. But we don't derive our theology from logic. We derive our theology from the Word of God. Now, I'm also going to be speaking on multiple occasions about the various good outcomes of applying these doctrines to your life. In particular, we're going to see how these beautiful doctrines and how these descriptions of God's work in salvation propel us to be fearless in missions and evangelism. William Carey, the father of modern missions, one of the great men of the recent uh, generations in the church, he went to India and started a mission there. Adoniram Judson, the father of American missions, who took the gospel to Burma. Both of these men were driven by their rich understanding of the doctrines of grace. All of the best and most dedicated missionaries that I have ever personally known, and all the greatest pastors, preachers, and evangelists that I have ever known are all able to keep their hand to the plow because they know and love these doctrines. But we don't build our theology around pragmatism. We don't just do it because it works. We don't just believe these things because they do produce results. We derive our theology from the Word of God. Our task today is to consider the nature and limitations of man in regards to salvation. In particular, we're going to ask the question, can man choose to follow Christ? That is a shorthand way that I will repeat through the sermon of asking the question. However, the more robust and thorough question is this, can man choose to come to Christ apart from the initiating work of God? Normally, the way that I go about preaching a sermon is kind of like this. I will build an argument when I'm preaching about doctrine or theology of this type, and I will build one thing after another, after another, after another, until I finally land that explosive final statement where we make the conclusion of the argument at the end. Now, that's not how we're going to operate today. I'm just going to out front give you the bottom line. We are going to ask our big question to the Bible, and we are going to get an immediate answer. And then what we're going to do is we are going to spend the rest of our time asking more questions to the Bible in order to understand not that it is true. We will see that right off. We are going to then understand why that is true, according to the rest of Scripture. So we begin by asking the question of the Bible, can man choose to follow Christ? John 6, 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now let's break this down a little bit. The fact that Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day indicates here that he is talking about salvation. This is not talking about sanctification. It is not talking about a specific aspect of the Christian life. He is talking about that which allows us to enter into heaven itself. And according to Jesus, who can come? No one can unless the Father draws him. And what we're going to do is we are going to zoom in on how the drawing part of that occasion works in three weeks. So if you're asking questions, how does God draw people? We will get there. Can man choose God apart from God's initiatory work? According to this passage, no, absolutely not. Jesus says that God must do the work of bringing a sinner to salvation. 
Now let's press a little further into that answer by seeking to understand why that must be true. In order to do that, we are going to ask one of the most important philosophical questions ever asked, and that is, is man basically good, intrinsically good, or basically and intrinsically evil? In order to answer that question, we need to first define our terms. How does the Bible define the word good? Psalm 119 verse 68 says of the Lord, you are good and do good. This is our starting block for understanding what the Bible says when it speaks of being good. It is that which accords with the person and character of God. In order to be in this category of good, you have to live with a godlike perfection of character at all times without ever faltering. Now, you are able to accomplish comparative good. It is the common grace of God that allows even unbelievers to be kind. They can be friendly and upstanding citizens, good parents, loving spouses, and even decent neighbors. Every unsaved person is able to portray actions that we would look at and say, I like that, I respect that, that is good. But God's standards are not arbitrary, and they are not our standards, and he cannot move the goalposts one inch in the direction of our capabilities because to do so would be lowering his standard of holiness. And it's important to understand that we as sinners do not think or speak or act in such a way of what the Bible calls the criteria of good. And that is why Jesus has this statement in a conversation with this rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Now just remember the scene here. I think most of you will be very familiar with that conversation. There is a man who is known for being an upstanding, righteous, outwardly good person. Compared to any of the disciples, he is a better man. And he comes into this conversation with Jesus. And he begins talking to Jesus. And he begins speaking to Jesus by saying, good teacher. And immediately, whatever that man planned to say, Jesus throws him off his game. And he just says, there is no one who is good except God alone. That's it. Now, what you need to understand, what Jesus was doing here is very simple. He is trying to help this man understand, I am either God or I am not good. Because if I am not good, if I am not God rather, I am therefore not good. So I am either God or I am just like you, a sinner in need of God's grace. And of course, Jesus is God and of course, Jesus was showing him that I am the Son of God. Anyone who has ever watched the news or raised children or taken an honest look in the mirror knows that the nature of man is corrupt. Earlier, I asked you to join me in Romans chapter 3. Follow along with me, starting in verse 10. Sorry, as I told you to turn there, I didn't turn there myself. Here, Paul is writing in chapters 1 and 2 about how all have fallen short. And in chapter 3, he comes to the conclusion of the argument. He says, just in case, just in case there's anyone here listening that thinks they might fall outside of the boundaries of what I have just said regarding your sin nature. He lands the blow, drops the hammer by saying, starting in verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Now, last week you did such a good job at call and response. I'm going to ask you to help me again today. No one is righteous, 
No, not one. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Help me out again. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And he lands the plane by giving the underlying reason for all of these things. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, it's important for you to notice that the extent of your depravity goes way beyond your actions. It also goes to your desires. No one seeks for God, he says. This laundry list of our nature is a patchwork of Old Testament quotes, and they are all telling you who you are. This is your story, and it is mine. When stated together like this, it is like a sharp left hook to the nose of your self-image. You are a sinner through and through. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.10 says, If we have no, say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Consider this little parenthetical phrase in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 36. He says, If they sin against you, and then this little, this, he just throws this little thing in the middle of the sentence. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin that is you. And you might say, well, yes, I agree with you. I do sin sometimes, but when I do get it, and I do understand, and I do what is right, it all balances out. The problem is that you have never done anything that is on the, the level of holiness for what God requires as acceptable. Uh, this past summer, we studied Isaiah chapter 64 when we were going through the latter third of the book of Isaiah. And in verse 6, we hear this, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Now, that's a really interesting phrase because he does not say all of our bad deeds are a polluted garment. All of our sins, all of our idolatry, all of our false worship, all of that is like a polluted garment. Uh, when I was at a previous church, a small group put together a skit and they acted that skit out one evening at one of our gatherings. And in it, for this Christmas skit they were doing, uh, they had one figure that was supposed to represent the Lord. And uh, they had a bunch of other figures that were to represent people in the church. And so they did it through the scope of a family. You've got the father and a bunch of children. And the children were so excited. And they were bringing the father presents. And on stage, he would unwrap the present. And he would open the box. And he would lose his countenance and look inside and begin to pull out filthy rags, putrid, disgusting, ugly things. And he would say, this smells terrible. Get it, get away from me. I can't touch that. I can't be near that. That is how our best works, our righteous deeds are described by Isaiah. Your best efforts fall short because you and I are unholy. Now, I think you get the picture. You're a sinner. But how far does this depravity reach? I was once told by somebody who disagrees with the doctrines of grace that I am sharing with you now 
that this is how salvation works. He said, well, God did 99% of the work by sending Jesus to die for us. He went all the way here, all the way to the cross, and Jesus died so that people would have the opportunity to go that last 1%, so that people could then believe and respond, and they will believe and respond if they desire to do so, and anyone can, but some people just decide not to. God did 99% of the work. We just have that 1% left to do ourselves. The only thing is, this is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. The problem with that theology is if there was 1% of the work left to do, then nobody would be saved. No one can come to him unless the Father draws him. God does not do anything 99% of the way. He does not save us 99%. He accomplishes 100% of the work, including giving us the gifts of faith and repentance. And we'll learn more about that next week. In order to parse this out further, let's spend the rest of our time looking at biblical anthropology, what the Bible says about who you are by breaking down the nature of man into smaller parts. We're going to look at it through the lens of the heart, soul, mind, and strength, just to have a biblical outline. And then for a cherry on top, at the end, we're also going to consider your will. Let's ask the question, is your heart totally affected by sin? Now, there are multiple ways that the word heart is used in the Bible. Uh, Think of it as your propensities and your proclivities of your desires and goals and ambitions. Well, the Disney Channel tells you that you are supposed to follow your heart. The Disney Channel, once again, lies. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Your heart is described by God as being completely infected with the disease of sin. Modern psychology teaches us that all of us are born morally neutral. We are the tabula rasa. We are a blank sheet. And only through external forces and then bad influences can we fall into immorality. Is that what the Bible teaches? Well, Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, the exact opposite of what modern psychology says. He says, for it is from within, from within, yes, from within, out of the person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly, all of these evils come from inside and defile a person. How are we defiled? It is from within. Now, no offense to any psychiatrist or psychologist, but I'm going to trust Jesus on this one. He tells us that the origin point of our evil actions is not external stimuli, but internal. And that is because our heart is totally depraved. But what about our soul? Is your soul totally affected by sin? One of the metaphors that is used to describe the unsaved throughout the New Testament is the metaphor of slavery. For example, John chapter 8, verse 34 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's not your physical body that's chained up to sin. There are people who have been, and even to this day, are slaves physically, but he's not talking about that kind of bondage. It is your soul that is captivated. It is not hindered from movement. It is hindered from obeying Christ. 
Paul explains what it looks like to come out of this bondage in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 through 18, when he says, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. So what is the opposite of being a slave to sin? It is being obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free, meaning someone has set you free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Now before you are saved, your soul is in bondage. It is a slave to sin. You had no strength to break the chains that caused you to do what you did. But as a Christian, you never have to sin again. You can now act freely to obey the Lord. But in order to get there, notice that Paul indicates in Romans 6, 17, that God is to receive all of the thanks for this transition out of sin, slavery to sin, because he is the one who does it. Why would he say, give thanks to God for this, if you are the one who set yourself free? Consider how Paul explains it in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or he pauses and says, actually, here's a better way of saying it, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world who ensla- whose slaves you want to be once more? Did you see that incredible turn there? He makes clear that the way you were brought out of slavery was not that you came to know God. That's not how it started. But that he came to know you. The word know meaning that he set his affection upon you. Let's ask, is your mind totally affected by sin? When we talk about the mind, we are talking about somebody's ability to think, somebody's ability to reason. It is the mind's job to take in information that surrounds you and piece it together into a coherent worldview. But when an unbeliever hears the gospel, how do they receive it? I was speaking with a missionary just recently, um, and I asked him to share with me something that he was learning. I love asking this question of people who are in ministry, somebody who's on the field or a pastor, and I, and I just like to ask the question, tell me something that the Lord is teaching you, and that gives me a lot of insight into what the Lord is doing in their ministry and in their hearts. And I was very discouraged by his response. He said, I'm realizing more and more, this is a paraphrase, but it's the best of my memory, he said, I'm realizing more and more that everyone in the world is walking in the same direction toward God. Everyone is searching for him. They just don't know how to find him. They just don't have all the right answers. So this missionary explained that if he can just come alongside of them and just give their mind the information that they are lacking, then, rationally speaking, they will consider the information and will determine that it is accurate and true, and then they will know Christ. Uh, That sounds nice, but the problem is, again, it's the exact opposite of what the Bible actually teaches. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. You've likely tried to share the gospel with somebody that's smarter than you are. I have done that many times, and I've looked at this person, and I've, I've acknowledged the fact that person who is sitting across from me is much more intelligent than me. Yet they cannot grasp the simple gospel. 
The gospel that if the Lord opens the heart, even a small child can understand. Yet this person with a PhD and with a brilliant brain cannot seem to grasp these simple truths. That is because, according to Paul, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. This is actually part of a much longer argument beginning in the end of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. And if you read there, he actually says the gospel is foolishness to them. A couple of verses later than the one we read, Paul adds, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. As Christians, we can understand the gospel. As Christians, we can understand the scripture. Why? Because we have been given the mind of Christ. Now, it's important to understand this is not telling us that God has taken the brain and lobotomized his son and given us his physical brain. Obviously, that is not true. It does not mean that you will think like him at all times either. No, that is not what is being stated. What is being stated is that you, when you were in your sins, you had the mind that was uh, delivered to you biologically through Adam. And because of that, you think like Adam. Your mind has limitations like Adam's because it is totally infected with sin. And now, if we are in Christ, we are given a mind that is able to understand the Scripture and to trust the Lord. What I want to do right now is I want to show you two examples of this, one in 2 Corinthians 3 and one in 2 Corinthians 4, where we see the opening eyes, uh, the opening of the mind of the Christian by God. 2 Corinthians 3.14 tells us that our minds are hardened. He says, But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remain, remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Now, there's a lot of Old Testament imagery in this verse and in the verses surrounding it, but the main point that you need to see here is he's saying there is something that hardens the mind, and the only way for that to be taken away is through Christ's work in taking it away. In the next chapter, it is referred to as mind blindness, if I can use that phrase. He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, picking up on that veil language, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, to those who are unsaved. He says, In their case, the God of this world, speaking of Satan, has done what? He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the problem with our mind. It is that for every person who does not know Christ, their mind is blind to these things. He continues in verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. In other words, I can't fix your problem. Only Jesus can fix your problem of mind blindness. He says, With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, according to that verse, it is not because you were smarter than anyone else. It's because when your mind was blind, just like everyone else, God caused it to open. And he did so by shining his light into your heart so that you might have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Who does these things? We do not do these things. He does these things. Now, according to these verses, what causes that light to go on is Jesus himself. You cannot reason your way into the kingdom. No one has ever been saved because someone caused them just to think rationally for a moment. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, and only the light of God can open the eyes 
because our mind is totally depraved. Let's ask the question, is your strength totally affected by sin? Here by strength, what I am referencing specifically is anything that you do with your physical body. Well, the Bible teaches us that our bodies are corrupted by sin, and that was passed down to us. If you want a thorough examination, Romans chapter 5 is the massive argument in Scripture where you will find it. If we were to do a spiritual doctor's visit, however, you would see that even the healthiest and most beautiful bodies in the world are all corrupt, according to Scripture. And they are, through their cravings, being pulled away from the Lord, not toward Him. Romans chapter 7, verse 14 explains it this way, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh of the body, sold under sin. Four verses later, Paul adds, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Nothing good dwells there. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, your strength is an output of your flesh, and the natural man is totally depraved, including the physical body. You cannot do good deeds to enter the kingdom of heaven because your flesh is totally depraved. Let's now move to one final question, and that is, is your will totally affected by sin? Paul uses another metaphor here to explain what we were like in our unsaved state in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, when he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul describes the unsaved person like a rotting corpse. The dead don't respond to anything. Once when I was a child, I think we went through a lot of fish when I was a kid. We had pet fish, you know, little goldfish or beta fish. And one time, I remember walking into our kitchen and looking at the, the fish bowl, and my brother, my youngest brother, five years younger than me, was attempting to feed our fish, but it was floating upside down, and it wasn't responding to, and he kept trying, you know, no matter how much food he put into the bowl, it wouldn't respond to him, and why would it not respond to him? Why would it not listen to him? That's his favorite kind of food. Why will he not eat it? Wake up, Charlie, wake up. He won't do it because he is dead, and dead people and dead fish do not respond to anything outside of them. They can't. Their senses are gone. No matter how much we try, we cannot awaken or aliven the dead. As my Midwestern dad put it, my fish was as dead as a doornail. I literally don't know what that means, but I've always remembered. Unsaved people do not want the things of God. Not God himself, at least. They might want some of the benefits of knowing God. They might want to go to heaven if you explain to them what heaven is and hell is. No sane person will say, of course I want to go to hell. Of course, everyone will say, I want to go to heaven. And they will want some of the benefits of peace and, and kindness and love that they might find in the church. But no unsaved person will ever have a genuine hunger to know, love, trust, or obey God because they are spiritually dead. Paul calls the unsaved children of wrath. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13 reiterates, reiterates this point by eliminating 
any aspect of our will as the possible source of salvation. He says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's verse 12. Amen? That is true. That is good. That is great news. But how does that happen? Verse 13 tells us, Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you are saved, ultimately it was not because you initially desired to be saved. It's because God desired you to be saved. Do you see John's point here? There are many who will receive Christ, but none of them will ever do so because of their own will. They will only come because of the work of God to bring them in. And you might ask the question, well, if this is true, then why does the Bible provide so many explanations or or presentations of a free offer of the gospel? If people can't respond, why even ask them to? And we're going to answer that question much more in depth in the coming weeks. But for now, what you need to know is that we are certainly supposed to present the gospel freely. We are supposed to declare it. I will stand in this pulpit, and as I have before many times, I will say to people, come to me all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to him. If you are here today and you are unsaved, come to him. I can make that call, and I will make that call whenever I preach, because there is a good Savior, and anyone who comes to him will be saved. I plead with you, if you don't know him, repent and believe, because there is salvation in no one else but Christ. But I also want you to know exactly what Jesus was saying when he said that call initially from Matthew chapter 11. I want you to back up one verse and see what he said directly before he made that call to the people. He said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And that is when he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He does make the call to everyone, but he acknowledges the fact that the only people that will ever actually come are the ones that he reveals him. Now, I'll make the gospel call, and you should abundantly and freely make that declaration to everyone, but the only ones who respond are the ones that the Father chooses, or the Son chooses to reveal the Father. People will always do whatever they want to do. When we speak about the will, you might say to yourself, I don't always do what I want to do. Sometimes I don't feel like going to work, but I would say to you, you still are doing what you want to do because you have a greater will, a greater desire than your desire to be lazy. Your desire is to get a paycheck, so you will say, I will eliminate this smaller desire, which is to be lazy, so that I might receive my higher desire, which is to eventually have enough money for food. That trumps my other desires. So you will do that which you most want to do at the point of decision. That's how all humans always work. We do whatever we most want to do. And anyone that wants to follow Christ can follow Christ. The problem is that nobody will ever want to follow Christ unless God first gives him that desire. Jesus explains that for us again in John chapter 6, verses 64 and 65. He says, But there are some of you who do not believe. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus is not shocked by that. He's not surprised by those that do not believe him. He knows exactly who those people are, and he knows why because of this reason, he says in verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Once again, he reiterates where we started this morning, that no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. Here he says, the reason I told you that is because that's the explanation for why some of you do not believe. So let's attempt to answer the, uh, the big question once again. Can man choose to come to Christ apart from the initiating work of God? And the answer, biblically, is no. Nobody has ever or will ever ultimately desire to be saved apart from the intervening work of God. And this means that salvation is all of grace. This means that, that God gets all of the credit and therefore all of the glory. You took no part in your salvation except to bring to the table all of the sin that you have committed. And he did the rest. Now I want to close our time now with one application and one exhortation. First, our application is this. If these doctrines are true, and I believe with all of my heart that they are, it should drive you to your knees in humility. If these things are true, and your salvation is all of grace, anyone who believes these things should be immensely humbled. If you are intrinsically good, or if you had some island of righteousness by which you could claw your way to salvation by way of heart, soul, mind, strength, or will, then you would have grounds for boasting. But you did not contribute, even in the slightest way, to your salvation. Therefore, you can get no credit. But as it stands, when we were hopelessly lost, that is when Christ came to, to die for the ungodly. That should drive us to our knees in adoration. It should cause us to have worshipful hearts. And it should cause us to reject any sense of support, superiority that we have over others, either inside or outside of the church. We look at those who are not like us and we say, how could they be like that? That would be you if it were not for the grace of God. We began our service with Romans 3 when he explains all of the depth of our depravity. We learned that none is good, no, not one. Say it with me. None is good, no, not one. That is certainly true. And it is more true of yourself than you can even understand. After Paul made that point, he asked the question in Romans 3.27, then what becomes of our boasting? If all this is true, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Sometimes Paul has these massive run-on sentences that go for paragraphs at a time, and he has this elaborate explanation of what happens to something. Here he just says as simply as he possibly can, as simply as he ever states anything, it's excluded. What happens to your boasting if these things are true? What happens to you personally as a Christian if these things are true and you know them to be true? There is no way you could ever boast before the Lord. It is excluded. The last thing that I want to speak about for a moment before we close our sermon this morning is I want to speak directly to anyone in the room that disagrees with the things that I am saying today or anticipate that they will disagree with the things that I am going to be saying over the next few Sundays, I want you to know if that is the case, I used to be exactly where you are. I was not only confused, but I hated the doctrines that I am espousing right now. 
When I was still in high school, I was being introduced to pastors, and I was being introduced to scholars and to seminary professors, because people said, this is good, you should believe this, you should hear this, and all I could do was argue and debate, and I want you to understand that all of the arguments that I made were evidence that I didn't understand the opposite side of the argument at all. I did not know what I was fighting against, and most importantly, I didn't understand the goodness of these doctrines. All I could see was my own tradition and beliefs, and I couldn't stand them. And if that's you today, I want you to know, if you do not agree with me at the end of the day, that does not mean that you are less of a Christian. It does not mean that you are not a Christian. There are many good Christians in my life that I love and I care for and I look up to as believers who disagree with, with me on these things. But the important thing for you to understand is that I want you to know these things because I wish with all of my heart that somebody told me these things 30 years ago. And that is the reason that I share them with you today because I believe that the best way for the Christian to truly be driven to their their heart be driven to worship of God is to really know who God is and how he works. And that opens our love for him to a new level. And so my desire is not to fight. It's not to create confrontation. My desire for you is that you might love the Lord more deeply through knowing and seeing him in this way in the scripture. So after the service, I'm going to be here. I will be here to ask questions. And I would love, if you do not understand or if you do not agree, to just come and reason together around the scriptures, graciously considering the good works of God. So if you want to know more, you're welcome to come and discuss these things afterwards. With that said, I look forward to talking about these things over the next several weeks. We'll be here the next four, considering the following four points of uh, the doctrines of grace. But for now, let's close our time in a word of prayer. Our Father God, we do thank you because... The things that we have seen today in the scripture reveal to us that there is certainly nothing in and of ourselves that would cause you to set your affection on us, yet you loved us. It is a mysterious thing, Lord, that you have poured out your affection and your kindness and your love on us through the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who alone has caused us to be saved. And we pray, God, that today as we are discussing these things and have heard these things and even now at the end of the service as we can continue that conversation, God, I just ask that you would bring a deep understanding and also a peace and unity around these things. And we ask that all in the precious and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.